welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. For the message this morning, we're going to read from Ephesians 2. If you'd like to turn there with me or look on the screen. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, good morning, everybody. The text that, that uh, Josh read is verses 1 through 10 in Ephesians chapter 2. And I, I do want to cover all of it, but I want to particularly focus on these three verses behind me, and even more specifically focus on verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Let me just read the text, and then I want to go back, set the context, and then we're going to unpack this text in tremendous detail. And that may sound scary to you, but I hope you'll see the benefit of doing this by the time that we're done. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, words matter. Small words matter. Little, tiny, insignificant, one or two letter words in any language matter a great deal. And when it comes to the notion of our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, I want to be very clear that in this particular text, the tiniest of words used in these three verses make all the difference in the world. As to a proper view of salvation, over against an improper view of salvation. So what I would like to do this morning, it's a little bit more teaching than preaching. I want to do a series of grammatical reflections on Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Now that sounds awful. I I agree. It, It sounds terrible. Like who would ever want to sit through that? But I think you'll see the point as we go through it. All right? And what I want to do is I want to, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but we're going to move extremely slowly through these three verses. I'll talk quick, 
but we'll move slowly through the verses, and we're going to piece together. It's, it's almost like we're building a building out of Legos. And we're going to piece together how each of these tiny little words in these three verses make such a big difference to the theology that flows forth from these verses. So, verse 8. Word number one is the word for. All right, In the English language, especially in Scripture, anytime the word for is at the beginning of a sentence, it almost always, please hear me, almost, not always, but almost always, over 90% of the time, the word for at the beginning of a sentence means because. It states a reason. All right, so whenever you're reading in your Bibles, and I'm not sure how the Afrikaans grammar, if it, if it lines up exactly the same, but particularly in the English translations, the word for means because. Because. So, when you come to a verse like verse 8, and it starts with the word for, you want to stop for a moment and you want to remember what came before. Because what Paul is doing as he begins verse 8 is he is saying, I've said a bunch of things previously, and here's why. So verse 8 starts with the word for, it means because. So because, okay, so because what? Well, let's go back to verses 1 to 7 very quickly. In verses 1 to 3, you can read those verses as I'm, as I'm summarizing them for you. In verses 1 to 3, Paul is introducing the condition under which we live in our sinfulness. So prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we are lost. We are dead, Paul says, in our trespasses and sins. We have no ability in and of ourselves to do anything that would please God. We stand before God condemned. In fact, in the middle of verses 1 to 3, Paul says that we're actually following the devil. Okay, So in our lostness, in our sinfulness, we're not just ignorant, we're not just sort of unaware. We're not good people with a few bad beliefs. No, no, no. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are rotten to the core. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing worthwhile in us. There's nothing that would earn God's love, His grace, and forgiveness. Paul says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the, the world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, end of verse 3, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is a very strong language that Paul is saying in verses 1 to 3, this is who you were, all right? Prior to salvation in Christ, this is who you were, verses 1 to 3. Now in verses 4 to 7, Paul transitions. At the beginning of verse 4, it says, but God. There's a contrast there. The word but has that idea of I'm contrasting what I just said with what I'm about to say. So Paul says, in the former time, prior to coming to faith in Christ, you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. You were following after the devil. You were fulfilling the passions of your flesh. You were not in favor with God. In fact, you were just like everybody else. You were lost in your sin. But God, Paul says, but God, but God. And then he goes on in verses four to seven, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he, with which he loved 
us. Even when we were dead, he died for us. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him. He seated us us with him in the heavenly places. And then verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, Verses 4 to 7 in the Greek text is all one sentence. It's very complex. You could preach about four sermons out of just verses 4 to 7. You really could. It is densely populated with truth and with theological richness. But what Paul is doing is after verses 1 to 3, he comes to verses 4 to 7 and he says, You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive in Christ. And that coming alive in Christ has a lot more to do with just getting out of hell. That coming to life in Christ has actually put you in a position whereby in Christ Jesus, you have an inheritance, you are seated with him in heavenly places, you can anticipate in the coming age victory in Jesus Christ. An inheritance of the riches, he says in verse 7, the riches of his grace. So Paul in verses 1 to 7 gives this theological treatise, really just two sentences. Verse 1 to 3 is basically one sentence in the original text, and verses 4 to 7 is a second sentence in the original text. And Paul sets this very dense uh, explanation of our lostness in sin, and then he proceeds to say what has happened to us for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's against that backdrop now that we go back to what's on the screen and in our text, verses 8 through 10. So Paul says, for all of this, verses 1 all the way through verse 7, is because what he says in verses 8, 9, and 10. Does that make sense? So everything he's been saying in verses 1 to to 7, now he's going to give you the reason for it. Why did God do all of this? Why is this true? Why is this such a big deal for us? Why has God graced us this way? Well, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now let's unpack that very quickly. For, we know what for means, by. Now for cons, you might say, they, right? Did I get that right? but it's by in the English language. It has the idea of how something happens. So Paul says, all of this is true for you in Jesus Christ because by grace, the two-letter word by, B-Y, by grace. By has the idea of the means or the instrument that is used to get something done. God desires to save us. How is he going to do that? What is the instrument that he will use? The other day I was putting some things in Herb's uh, garage and someone bent his garage door. Um, And so his garage door, when you try to shut it, it gets stuck on the frame because the whole door is, is askew. And we were trying to shut this because we were leaving and we needed to lock up and everything. And with the humidity and such, the wood is swollen now. And so we were trying to find an instrument with which to slam the door shut. And I had a bright idea that a sledgehammer would probably get the job done. 
on a wooden garage door. Uh, to which Janet, Herb's wife, responded, that may be a little bit of an overkill. That, that may, we may end up damaging the door more than it already is. Let's try to just use our hands and, and, and twist and turn just at the right time. And we eventually got it shut without the sledgehammer. Almost lost a couple of fingers, but it, it was fine. We, we used the instrument of our hands rather than a heavy sledgehammer, which probably would have done more harm than good. God wants to save us in Christ Jesus. He, he, he desires that we come to him in faith. He desires that we are saved. But how does he get that done? Paul says, by grace. By means how. Very often. Not always, but in this context, by means how. So why has God done all of what he said he did for us in verses 4 to 7? Well, the reason is, is because by grace, you have been saved. Now we look at the word grace. Grace, we know, right? Grace is God's unmerited favor. There's nothing that we do to earn grace. Otherwise, it's not grace. Grace has the idea of being given a gift. It is not something we have to pay back. It's not something that puts us in some sort of obligation to earn our favor or to earn our way out of it. Grace is a gift of God. We're going to see that in just a moment. By grace. For by grace, what, what's next? There's the verb. The verb of the sentence. Now, I'm learning about Afrikaans verbs, and they're killing me right now. Uh, I'm learning that every single verb always wants to run to the end of the sentence for some reason. And I asked my teacher the other week, I said, what is it in the Afrikaans language that's so attractive that every single word wants to run to the end. I learned about the past tense, and I learned about the future tense, and the verbs want to run to the end. And I thought, okay, I got that. It's sorted. It's easy. If I see a verb at the end, I know it's past or future tense. No problem. Well, it's not that easy. Because then there's another expression that wants to run to the end. And so the verb that runs to the end isn't always the verb that gets to the end, because sometimes it's beat out to the end by another expression. So a couple weeks ago, we were learning the om te. Um, to, oh, that, that's crazy. Who, who, who came up with that idea? So now you have a split infinitive where the verbal part of the infinitive wants to run to the end, but then the other adjectival or adverbial part of the infinitive has to be, oh, it's, it's driving me insane. And, and I began to ask, what is it about the end of the sentence that everyone wants to run to the end? Everything wants to run to the end. The point is, verbs are important. They, they matter. Grammatically, the way they're phrased or the way they're expressed or their position in a sentence makes a big deal. Uh, on the quiz I just took last week, it apparently makes a bigger deal than I thought it did. Um, but anyway, this verb, you have been saved, is loaded with meaning. This verb is in the passive voice. Not the active voice. You say, what do you mean by voice? Well, we know the difference between an active verb and a passive verb, right? An active verb is where the subject of the verb is doing the action. So if my phone were to ring now, uh, which it won't because it's, it's off except for the time. If to ring now, you could describe me answering the phone in two ways. In the active voice, you would say, George answered his phone. That's active because you're expressing me 
as the subject doing the verb, which is picking up my phone. However, you could put that in a passive voice. And you could say, the phone was picked up or was answered by George. Do you see the difference? One is active voice, where the subject is doing the action. One is passive voice, where the subject is being acted upon. Okay? In this verse, Paul uses passive voice. You have been saved. That's huge. Because he doesn't say you obtained salvation. You earned salvation. You sought after and found salvation. He doesn't put us in the position of doing the thing that results in salvation. He says you have been saved. Your salvation is not what you did to yourself. Your salvation is something that has happened to you. God did this to you. God gets the glory, the credit, the praise, the honor, and the glory for everything that has happened to you. You have been saved. But it's not just about the active versus passive voice that's important. There's another part of this verb that you don't see, and you wouldn't see it in an Afrikaans expression or an English expression, at least that I'm not aware of. And that is that this verb is not just in the passive voice, It's in the perfect tense. You say, what is a tense? Well, we know past tense, present tense, future tense. Well, in our languages, both in Afrikaans and English, you have what's called a perfect tense. Now, it isn't as prominent, and it might not be named as such, but in the Greek language, there's a very important verb tense that is the perfect tense. And you say, what does that mean? Perfect tense is beautiful. Because the perfect tense means that the action has happened in the past that has continuing results now in the present and it will continue to have results in the future. Wow. So so think about your salvation now. Paul says, for by grace, how your salvation has happened is a result of the work of God by grace You have been saved. You didn't do it to yourself. God did this for you and to you, but he did it in such a way that it is something that happened at one time in the past. There was something that happened where you transitioned from death to life, but it didn't just happen in the past. It's in the perfect tense, not the past tense. It's perfect. Well, what does that mean? It means that it happened in the past, and now it has an effect on the present, with dependable results that continue all the way into the future. Now think about your salvation in Christ. Think about everything that Paul has taught us with just that first phrase of verse 8. By grace, with the means of grace, God's grace, you have been saved. And that have been saved is massively loaded with meaning in the text. doesn't always present itself that way in our modern languages, but that's the meaning behind it. You have been saved. You were saved. You are in the process even now of seeing the results of your salvation. And if, in fact, you are truly saved, the results of that salvation will be evident all the way into the future. By grace, 
you have been saved, what's next? Through faith. Now, we looked at the word by. The word by is how, how something happens. The word through is the way in which we see the thing that happens, happens. So by grace, that's how. Your salvation is accomplished by grace, meaning you didn't do it. God did it. And trust me, if that sounds offensive to you, just hang with me because if it was dependent on us, none of us would be saved, right? So it's by grace. That's how it happens. But the how of our salvation, which is grace, is presented in the setting of faith. By grace, through faith. My son is anticipating, well, no, let's let's pick on somebody you know better. Let's pick on Louie for a moment. Let's pick on Louie for a moment. He just handed my daughter a ring with a diamond on it. It's supposed to mean something, you know. I, no, but when Louie bought this ring, the, the value, the focus, the point of the ring, the, the, the thing that's going to get the proposal done, so to speak, is the diamond, right? We're all looking at the diamond. You want the attention to be on the diamond. Now, the setting is important. It matters. It's necessary. But that's not the setting of the diamond doesn't get the job done. It's the diamond that gets the job done. And apparently it was successful because my daughter actually said yes. So, you know, apparently the diamond was appropriate. So, grace is like the diamond. That's the focal point of the ring. That's the thing. That's that's how we are saved is grace, but it is set forth. It's like the setting of that grace is faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith. The word through has the idea of how something comes about, how it's presented. So by is the means. It's the way in which it's done. It's the sledgehammer to the garage door. It's not a good idea, so I'm glad we avoided that. But through faith means the vehicle that carries the how. It's the setting of the diamond, if you will. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith is necessary. Faith is important. Faith is not to be diminished. But the faith is merely the setting for what actually accomplishes the event of salvation which is God's grace. Does that all make sense? Are we tracking so far? Because I need to move a lot quicker. For I, I did two hours on this verse uh, um, a few weeks ago for class, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm falling into that same pattern. You don't have that time, nor do you want to take that time. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, Paul goes on then, and he says, and that, or Um, Let me just read it. And this is not your own doing. That's the next phrase here. In the ESV English translation, this starts a new sentence. In the original Greek, it's actually a compound sentence. It's really not the start of of a brand new sentence. But either way, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Well, there's a lot of debate. What is the this? In verse 8, do you see this second line, second word from the left? This is not your own doing. 
scholars have debated for years. Is the this referring to the faith or the grace or the you have been saved? Well, the answer is really all of it. Paul, in saying, by grace you have been saved through faith, he's bracketing that. That's the event of salvation. That's your salvation captured in the phrase, by grace you have been saved through faith. So all of this, every part of this, Paul says, is not your own doing. I love the way that's expressed here in this translation because the idea is, is that the salvation that is by grace through faith, all of that, even the faith part, which to us seems like a very human part of this, and it is, but on the other hand, it is still not of ourselves. It's not of, Paul says, of your own doing, which means this. There was nothing inside of you that was so virtuous that you were able to, without the grace of God, muster up enough faith in order to be saved. Now, I I hear the objections all the time. Well, wait a second. I'm saved because I had faith. That was my faith. I made a decision in faith. I exercised saving faith. I would say it this way. Yes, your faith was an indication of God's grace, but even your faith is not born out of your own work. Even your faith, as human as that is, and as real as that is and was in your life, and and it is, it is real, it doesn't engender from, it doesn't come from the seed of yourself. Does that make sense? It is still a human thing, okay, fine, It is still your faith in the sense that it wasn't your parents' faith. It wasn't your spouse's faith. It wasn't your child's faith. It it has to be your faith, but that faith doesn't germinate out of you. That's the point. That's what Paul is saying. This is not your own doing, but rather, the last phrase of verse 8, it, so the it is the same as the this, okay, So what does it refer to at the end of verse 8? Well, the it refers to, by grace you have been saved through faith. That whole phrase. It is the gift of God. And and you don't see this in the English translations, and I'm not sure about the Afrikaans because my vocabulary is still very weak. I know you all thought I would have a lot more progress after a whole year away from you, but sadly I'm not that good of a student. I'm a much better teacher than a student anyway. The word gift and the word grace are very closely connected linguistically. All right. The word gift has the idea of uh, uh, mata. The word grace is charis. We put them together. That's where we get charismatic or charismata, grace gift. Okay. And Paul is using these words that often go together. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Gift should immediately make you think of the word grace, because that's what grace is. It's a gift. And that's what a gift is. It's it's a grace. Do you see how they fit together? One sort of implies the other, and the other necessitates the one. So by grace, you have been saved through faith. 
all of that, that whole thing is not of your own doing. You didn't cause this. You didn't bring it about because of your brilliance or your inward virtue. No, no, no. It is the gift of God. God alone gifts you his salvation. You don't have faith and God says, oh, wow, Josh had faith. I I better do something. I better go save him because he had, no, no, no. Everything is originated, initiated, and provided for through the whole process exclusively by the grace of God. The gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works. Not a result of works. The not a result of works, the first phrase of verse 9, is meant to be set in parallel with the middle of verse 8, where Paul says, this is not your own doing. That is meant to be set in parallel with the beginning of verse 9, not a result of works. You see, Paul anticipated that his audience might say, okay, Paul, fine. I understand that the faith and the grace and my salvation does not come out of, it is not engendered by me, but still, the resulting faith that I have is a work that ultimately provides for my salvation. Paul anticipates that. He says, no, that's not it. Let me be very clear that salvation is exclusively the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Even your own faith cannot be counted as a work that earns you salvation. You've probably heard some people say it this way in a moment of theological clumsiness where they will say, well, you're not saved by works. You're saved by one work, and that's faith. That's false. Let today be the last time you ever put up with somebody saying that, okay? (laughs) So it is not, your faith doesn't become a work. You know, I'm not saved by works, but then my faith is kind of the work that gets God to take interest in it. No, 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 no. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's a gift of God. It is exclusively a gift of God. And I'm not even allowed to turn my faith, which is from God anyway, I'm not even allowed to turn my faith into a work. So Paul, at the beginning of verse 9, just make sure. He, he, it's, almost as like, it's almost as like we're kind of impetulant teenage children, and, and he needs to sort of reinforce that point in case we missed it. It's not of yourselves. Oh, and by the way, it's not only not of yourselves, it's also not of works. It's not of works. Why? Why couldn't it be of works? What, what, what's the big deal? Why, why isn't our salvation actual or result of works in some sense? Well, Paul said, excuse me, Paul says, it's not of works so that no one may boast. Don't miss the significance of the last phrase of verse 9. God initiates and brings about, He enables our faith, He extends grace, He gifts us with His salvation, excluding anything that would come from within our sinful selves, excluding anything that would come from our own works. He does all of that so that we will not boast. I, I, I can't, you know, he's talking about salvation and in the context, he's talking about seated in the heavenly places and 
this grand inheritance in Jesus Christ. And why is he so concerned about boasting? What was the fall of Satan all about? Do you remember that? Satan fell from heaven because Satan wanted to be a glory producer rather than a glory reflector. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is adamant that the primary reason by which God has created this plan of salvation for us, the primary reason that this cannot be of our own doing, it cannot be of our own works, is because God will jealously guard His glory for all time. If I were to ever come to the place where I took credit for my own salvation, where I began to boast in my own whatever it is, my virtue, my intelligence, my ability to figure God out, whatever that might be, whatever I might think in my mind gives me cause to boast. Paul shuts it down here. All of this is of God so that no one can boast. No one can brag, can can draw the attention to ourselves. This is why, I'm not going to name names, but this is why any kind of Christian denomination that mixes faith and works together to earn your salvation. This is why, this is one of the reasons why, not the only reason, but it is a reason why they're false. Is because if there is any sense in which I take credit for my own salvation, then I have become Satan. I have become Lucifer. I have become the head of the angels who, in a moment welled up with pride, I seek to become a glory producer instead of a glory reflector, and I take the glory to myself. And that is the very opposite of what salvation by grace through faith is all about. So Paul wants to make it very clear for us that this salvation is not a result of our works so that we may boast. God will protect His glory. He will protect His supremacy. Now, you might say, well, isn't that a little egotistical of God? Like, why is he so, why would he not want to share glory with his creatures? Well, God knows a little bit more than us. And he knows that if God had to ever share his glory with us, we would fall, because of our sinfulness, we would, we would fall so far miserably short that he would have no choice but to condemn us forever. The only way, that God can have fellowship with us in a saving relationship is if He gets the glory for all of it. That's the only possible way it can work because God knows who we are. In, in Left to ourselves, we are verses 1 to 3. Not verses 4 to 7. That's why verses 4 to 7 starts with, but God. God is the one who does all this. All right, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. And then verse 10, and I'll do this quickly. I sort of promise. For, there's another for, which again means because. So what is it that we need a reason? Well, 
based upon verses 8 and 9, and especially the end of verse 9, so that no one may boast, you're meant to ask yourself, why? Why should I not boast? Why am I not going to be able to boast? Well, Paul says, beginning of verse 10, for or because, and and get this very carefully, we are his workmanship. Paul just finished telling us salvation is not of works. And now he says, here's why it's not of works. It's because we are his work. We are his workmanship. We, our lives, our redeemed, saved lives are the result of his workmanship. Ah, here we go. Middle of verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see, Paul anticipates the Ephesian believers saying, well, Paul, wait a, wait a second. Aren't my works necessary? Okay, I understand that my works do not cause my salvation, but aren't my works necessary to keep my salvation? Have you ever heard anybody say that before? I'm not saved by works, but I'm kept saved by works. That's also false, by the way. That's also heresy. Notice, words matter, friends. Words matter. Even little words matter. Notice the beginning of verse 10 again. We are His workmanship. That means He is acting on us. Do you see anywhere at the beginning of verse 10 where I have worked on myself, where I've created me? No. We are His workmanship. And then look, created in Christ. There's another passive verb. I didn't create me in Christ Jesus. What does the word say? Created in Christ Jesus. I am created in Christ Jesus. I do not create myself in Christ Jesus. You see the difference? Again, it's passive voice. Created in Christ Jesus. Oh, wait. Created in Christ Jesus. Now we get to the heart of it. Verse 10. You see, this is only going to work if we are found to be in Christ. If we are created in Christ. Now, I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works. So yes, conscientious objector, works do matter. But works are not the cause of my salvation. They're the result of my salvation. Because I've been created... Passive voice. I didn't do the creating. God created me in Christ Jesus for for the purpose of good works. That's the way in which for does not mean because, by the way. In the middle of verse 10, the word for is for the result of. For good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, the which refers to the good works, which... God prepared beforehand. Do you see that there? God prepared beforehand. So anyone who would say, okay, Paul, fine, I get you, I agree, I'm not saved by works, but I do kind of feel like my works are sort of keeping me saved. Paul won't let you do that. Because the way he phrases verse 10 is that, number one, we are his workmanship, Number two, we are created, we don't do the creating, we are created in Christ for good works, 
And just so we don't miss it, he adds the phrase, which God prepared beforehand. Those good works that we walk in, God set that up ahead of time. God prepared those beforehand for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The walk now, the walking in good works, is after we have been created in Christ Jesus. It is after the moment of salvation. It is after the grace of God through faith has been manifest in my life in a saving way. It is only after that that I can begin now to walk in those good works, which God still gets credit for anyway. I mean, it's unbelievable how jealously Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, protects the exclusive glory of God. Salvation, friends, is God's work. It does not mean, please hear me, it does not mean that your response doesn't matter because your response does matter. But your response is enabled and initiated and ultimately brought about by the grace of God anyway. What amazes me is how many of us feel as if we had some sort of cause to our own salvation. We participate, but we don't cause it. Does that make sense? We, Of course we have to have faith. And I'll preach a different sermon in a different setting where I'm pleading for people to come to faith in Christ. And I will speak as if they have a choice because they do. And yet, when that choice is made, it is never attributed to anything righteous or good or holy or praiseworthy in me, in us. It is only attributed to the grace of God. All right, I need to stop. We could go a lot longer, but I've been a good 40 minutes here. That's more than enough. Um, I hope that makes sense. I, I've tried to do a very sort of deep dive into just a few verses, and they're familiar verses to you. I, I know this. But I've tried to do this little grammatical analysis to show you that in the detailed intricacies of the Scriptures, There is rich theology that comes forth and that sets our understanding of salvation on the right path. And I pray to God that perhaps after today, you will be more emboldened to share this faith with others. That you will be more confident of your standing before Christ because of the overwhelming, undescribable grace of God. I hope that you will appreciate your salvation even more than you ever have. And that you will go home this afternoon and you will maybe pause just for a moment today and give God exclusive glory for what he has done in your life. Let's close in prayer together. Father, I do thank you um, for this text. And it is, it's, it's exciting, at least for me, uh, to teach through and to preach through. Lord, I pray that you would help us understand, perhaps in a deeper way, what our salvation is, how it comes about, how it's presented, how it's accomplished, what its results are. Lord, there's so much more we could say, but Lord, I pray that you would help each of us now to apply this teaching to our lives in whatever way in which would glorify you most. 
Lord, I'm sure in a group of this size, there, there may be some who have yet to find out what it means to be saved. Maybe they have not, in fact, um, seen the truth or understood the truth or believed the truth in faith. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts. Lord, there are probably some here this morning, probably most in the room this morning, who, who are saved, who know you, who understand the truth of the gospel. But Lord, we need to be reminded that this is all of you. Lord, we thank you so much that it's all of you, because if it was even 1% of us, we would fail. So Lord, I pray that you would help us delight in you more. I pray that you would give us more grateful hearts, more grateful attitudes, and that we would be even more motivated than ever to share that faith with others. Lord, I do thank you for this congregation and this community and their testimony of your faithfulness. I thank you for the venue that they have to be able to meet and to spread out and to observe the proper protocols and yet still worship together as a church. It's a, it's a great thing. We thank you for it. We ask that you would go with us now with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Come, my soul, with every care. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself bids you to pray and will never turn away. You are coming to our King. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. With my burden I begin, Lord, remove this load of sin. Let your blood for sinners filled set my conscience free from guilt. Lord, your rest to me Take possession of my heart. There your blood bought right maintain, and without a rival reign. While I am a pilgrim here, let your love my spirit cheer. As my guide, my guard, my friend, what I am to do. Every hour my strength renew. I would have your will, not mine.